Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. This is probably an apocryphal quote, but I like to believe it's true that Steve Jobs of Apple once said that every interaction that you have with people is either a deposit or a withdrawal. And what you want to be doing is in your relations with the owner and your relations with the contractor, making as many deposits as you can so that when you need to make a withdrawal, there is goodwill and flexibility on the other side so that they're willing to work with you. Because if we hadn't had you know, a Mike Baker at Mutual willing to go to bat for us, if we hadn't sort of took the stance that the Mason, just because they were proposing that change, they weren't in a sense our enemy in any way. They were just trying to save the owner some dollars. And going in with it, that kind of, to the greatest degree that you can, sort of an attitude of patience and goodwill, you're more likely to get results that everybody can look at. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guest today is Andrew Burke, principal at Soderstrom Architects in Portland, Oregon. With over 25 years of experience, Andrew leads the design effort on higher education projects focused on sustainability and placemaking on campus. He has a deep breadth of experience in designing for all aspects of student life, from residence halls to dining facilities to academic buildings, as well as master planning. Andrew believes that well-designed buildings do not merely enrich the quality of students' education, but also contribute to the health and growth of the university. He is a member of the American Institute of Architects and the Institute of Classical Architecture, which is a new one to me. The project we are going to talk about today is the George Fox University, or GFU, Medical Sciences Building in Newburgh, Oregon. The building is a three-story, 42,000-square-foot off-campus hub 
for the Physical Therapy and Physicians Associate Graduate Programs of George Fox University. It is wood-framed with a facade consisting of three varieties of brick veneer to create visual interest, pattern, and texture. The corners are accented by brick coins designed to complement the architectural styles found in nearby downtown Newburgh's historic core. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com podcast. Over the past decade, George Fox University, a longtime partner with Soderstrom Architects, has transformed their campus as a part of their long-term vision. For the Medical Sciences Building, the university embarked on the venture with a local Newburgh developer who had both land and a willingness to create a building tailored to GFU's needs. Strategically located near the Providence Newburgh Hospital, one and a half miles east of the main campus, the GFU Medical Sciences Building responds to a growing need across the country to train more medical professionals and accommodates the influx of this specific student body. Where are the students coming from? Where can we make sure that we are, if nothing else, stabilizing our enrollment? And a lot of that is recognizing that there is an increasing demand in nursing, for example. Nursing and allied health professionals, there is an, has been over the last handful of years an, an unmet need, a strong demand in the marketplace for nurses, physical therapists, in this case, a physician's assistants. Actually, it's now called Physician's Associate. The PA, it's the same acronym, as the A is different, and I have to remind myself how it changed. And at some point, the university concluded that the best option for them financially was, yes, we need to build this, this square footage, but no, we're, we're not going to do it ourselves. We're going to engage with a local Newburgh area developer who had both the property and was willing to spec build the building to the university's, with the university's architect, which is fairly unusual. He basically said, okay, you just tell, you have your, your guy draw what you need and he'll work with me and we'll develop a building that makes, I don't think he ever used the term, but I, I think the correct term is make the pro forma work. And that's how we kicked off the process at some point. We were, we were told. It's going to be a George Fox University building, but except that it's over here, a mile, mile and a half away from campus. The facility was meticulously designed to cater to both the physical therapy and physician associate programs. The building is ultimately ended up three stories, 42,000-ish square feet. The two programs, the physician's associates and uh, physical therapy, occupy it. They each get about roughly half of the building. So I'm thinking one and a half floors each. PT is on the ground floor because they also had a public, as a part of their, as I'm understanding it correctly, a part of their accreditation process, their instructors need to continue practicing. So they operate a clinic that both gives students an I think they essentially have people who come in and volunteer or perhaps pay some very, very minimal visit cost to give the students uh, practical experience with real people with sore muscles. And then also it allows uh, instructors potentially to run small practices there. 
again, I'm hoping I've understood that requirement correctly, but that's, there was a clinic function, which is on the ground floor. And then the PA program had the half of the middle floor and then the top floor for, for their program. It's a mixture of generalized classroom spaces, specialty classroom spaces that relate to the particular programs and support offices, predominantly faculty offices. One remarkable aspect of this project is the adaptation and integration of technology, which played a crucial role in the design and its evolution. One of the peculiar trajectories of the design was the anatomy lab. So I suspect many of the listeners, particularly the design professionals, have started to incorporate VR into their day-to-day practice over the last couple of years. That's certainly been our experience. And this will age me, but I will say something along the lines of when some of the younger staff, because it's always the younger staff, who are saying, we really need to get a VR set up and we need to spend this money to to have this equipment and software to run it. And I remember thinking, well, kind of a gimmick. And it's not on this project that we're talking about, but on a subsequent project, the ability to use VR and go in and stand in so-called stand in space and say, okay, this is great, except this thing needs to move two feet this way. And that duct doesn't really work there. So now I'm much more appreciative of the way that the VR can, can supplement the design process. Physical therapy was going through a very similar thing a handful of years ago, where it was just at the cusp of where the industries that support physical therapy were starting to bring along or into the marketplace software that gave you virtual cadavers. So when we started planning the building years ago, we were looking at uh, an enlarged uh, cadaver lab. They had an existing one in. One of the funny things about George Fox's campus is as they've grown, they took over, I think it was a Kaiser facility. It was a, a small hospital and they had been repurposing that to classrooms and the typical university functions. And one of the things, I don't know what that it was originally, but one of the things they had in there was a, a 12 table, 14, a table cadaver lab. And that has very, very specific requirements for um, ventilation, obviously. So we were originally looking at an enlarged cadaver lab. And at some point, the head of the PT program said, you know, we actually think we could save the university money by increasingly going to a virtual cadaver lab. So at some point, the design changed. And instead of having to design the cadaver lab with 12 or 16 stations, there is one, but it's three. And so there are certain things where they still want the students to get in and interact with a physical cadaver. But the majority of the teaching has moved towards VR, which means the planning for that space, instead of all of the very particular, particularly mechanical requirements, it's just a classroom, just a classroom with a, with a fair amount of technology, if you will, technology in quotes, so plugged into the, into the space. So that was an interesting thing about that changed during the design process. Very much in the way if you talked to, we had something similar years ago when we designed a library. And it was the, the moment at which libraries ceased to be repositories of books with lots of shelves and started to become study spaces. And what collections were remaining were sort of moved down to compact shelving because library, now that you can get all the information you ever wanted from an iPad, what exactly is the role of a library? And a similar thing happened with, with the Gadaver Lab. The technology changed it. 
Nestled a mile away from the historic core of Newburgh, this building seamlessly blends into the neighborhood's character. We knew from the developer that we had a very constrained site. It was already the building was kind of locked into being. It wasn't going to be an, extend, an extended L. It wasn't going to have a lot of parts. It was going to be a box. And then the question became fairly quickly, well, how do we decorate this box in a way that makes it fit in with, from our point of view, make it somewhat fit in with the, the character, not of the neighborhood, because the, the neighborhood is sort of an unusual mixture of, there were some apartment buildings, there was a, a retirement community nearby, the hospital was maybe a half mile up the road to the west-ish. So we ended up on a kind of a fanciful idea that the building was a misplaced mis or mislocated part of Newburgh's historic core. Because Newburgh, like a lot of uh, smaller Oregon towns, has lovely late 19th century and early 20th century buildings, some of which you know have, have survived. I suspect there was more years ago. And we just arrived at this idea that we could do something that was somewhat traditional appearance, or rather traditional appearance, bricky with tall, narrow windows, and the, the windows would have uh, have the appearance of traditional muntins, you know, the, the barbers on the front And that fit in with a whole bunch of other decisions about how, the, which we can talk about in more detail about how we handled the building structurally, what were the thoughts about uh, the cost of construction, it's sort of dovetailed with some of our sustainability goals. But it started with with that idea of like, what if we pretend that this building is an older Newburgh building that just happens to be a mile away from the historic core? The exterior design cleverly blends old world charm with modern efficiency, where sustainability was at the core of the project. The cost-effective decision to clad the building in brick in lieu of a contemporary glass curtain wall system not only harmonized with the surroundings, but also minimized maintenance costs, ensuring long-term viability. There was also a very practical reason for, for this, and I mean, I'm speaking in very, very broad terms about costs, but if you want to say, you know, what does a, this is Portland numbers, uh, other parts of the country, your mileage may vary substantially. But when we were thinking about what the cost of brick cladding is, let's say it's $32, $34. It was less when we did the building, Uh, a square foot and a window, this particular window manufacturer, and this is just an aluminum clad wood window. Let's say it's, is it 70 to 80 a, a square foot? So certainly more than brick. But if we're talking vast areas of curtain wall, you know, that's north of $100 a square foot. And certainly the developer, and I don't want to give the impression that the developer was driven entirely by cost. He was a, an absolutely lovely human being to, to work with and, and a pleasure from, from front to back. But he also was very cost conscious. And so there was no solution for this design that were going to be large areas of glass, curtain wall solutions, which would have also necessitated more complicated and thus more expensive structural solutions. The building is exterior wood frame sheer wall construction. And each of those panels in between the windows is a part of the shear solution because Oregon is a seismic part of the country. And it was the developer's direction that he wanted to, for maintenance reasons, have a brick-clad building. He didn't 
want to be in a position where he was looking at repainting from his point of view. The brick is essentially maintenance-free for as long as he imagines he's going to be owning the building. And so he directed us to do brick, and that fit in with our idea about the sort of historic quality of the design. And that mass needed to be accommodated somehow with the sheer wall construction behind it. So we weren't really going to have that many windows to begin with, and the windows needed to be sort of relatively narrow. So to get light into the space, that makes them relatively tall. Well, a tall and narrow window is a rather traditional looking window. So you ended up back sort of where you started. The building's sustainability extends beyond aesthetics. Increasingly, I think the profession is starting to look at embodied energy. I recall reading when I was in college years and years ago that it was actually sort of the opening very large book on energy performance in buildings. And they, at least the authors at that time, written in sometime in the 70s, were somewhat dismissive of the notion of embodied energy, and which is closely linked to carbon, as being an important concern. It was really focusing on operational energy only. You can imagine as buildings are becoming ever more efficient in their operational energy, that the amount of energy that is locked up in the, the embodied energy that is, becomes more significant. I think this building, with the exception of the brick cladding, does pretty well in that regard. The building is all wood frame, and that was a, more of a practical concern than a sustainability concern. The developer, his experience was with wood frame construction, so we didn't really want to do a steel frame building, although he question that decision when he was about four or five months into building it, thinking to himself, huh, maybe I should have done this as steel. But nonetheless, wood construction, regionally appropriate, you're getting the materials from this part of the world, you're not shipping them far away. Even the brick is from a local manufacturer of, of brick. And the other thing I would say about the sustainability, again, back to the windows, back to the structural solution is if you look at the facades, you actually see not a very large percentage of the exterior facades are glass. And that was tied to cost, tied to structure, tied to the aesthetic, but it has the advantage that obviously an insulated wall, solid wall is gonna perform better than any complicated glass solution. So the windows are placed in a way spaced, you know, the tall narrow windows spaced regularly throughout the facade. It was our supposition and what we heard from students and faculty who use the building, they say, oh, it's so lovely and light-filled. And you sort of scratch your head and say, you know, but, but in reality, it doesn't have that much glass. Should we tell them uh, that we don't really have that much glass? So that, in a way, is also a sustainability feature because the building is going to perform very, very well from a kind of an energy envelope uh, without having to have done anything unusual to get there. The building incorporates a variable refrigerant flow, VRF system, also known as variable refrigerant volume, VRV. As an aside, VRF and VRV refer to the same technology, but VRV is a term trademarked by an air conditioning manufacturer. As far as the technology is concerned, VRF is a ductless, large-scale system for HVAC. Multiple indoor units run on the same system of small pipes, which can heat and cool simultaneously. Refrigerant passes through condenser units to the indoor units, cutting down on the need for extensive ductwork and air handlers, increasing energy efficiency. Some notable benefits of VRF systems are energy efficiency, 
customizable temperature settings at each indoor unit, compatibility, scalability, quiet compared to traditional HVAC, and ease of install. With a VRF system, GFU's Medical Sciences Building performed 30% above baseline energy code requirements, making it the Energy Trust of Oregon's first VRF-qualified project. The VRF systems are notable because it's all electric. uh, We're not using fossil fuels. We pair it with a, a direct outside air system, so you're getting the air exchanges. The reason that we were doing this was to avoid a complicated, the, again, the developer owner wanted to avoid a complicated centralized mechanical plant. He liked the idea of um, the VRF systems because they're sort of discrete all with the coolant lines running to the units on the roof. And then we have, there are extra incentives for an integrated heat recovery system so that as you're making those air exchanges, depending on the time of year, if you were, let's imagine it's winter and you heated that air, you're pulling the heat out of that air you're exhausting before you're exhausting. And then you're using that heat to warm the air that you're pulling in. And and I'll admit a, a certain amount of ignorance about, about the details, but I know that the state of Oregon has energy incentives in place for these sorts of systems because they have the potential for being so efficient. Now, as a listener of Detailed, you know construction is where you can find challenges but also learn or experience something you can take into your next project. During construction, Andrew and his team suddenly found themselves hastily reworking decorative brick details after a cost-saving opportunity was identified. If you are asking an owner to spend more money on something, you have to be really clear whether they see value in the thing that you are asking them to spend more money on. And, you know, Architects can be a peculiar bunch where they are sort of really excited about some, and I'm, I'm not trying to be unkind, but some sort of fussy architecty thing that other professionals will see, but the vast swath of humanity will walk by and go, hmm. And so we had drawn this building mainly because it's habitual. We had used a, a modular brick, and which means that three courses, eight inches in height, and nominally eight inches wide. So it means that the brick fits whether you're one, two, three, or one, two, three. It makes doing things like soldier courses and belt courses and little brick details really easy to work out because the brick just, you just rotate it around and it fits in both directions. Except that when the mason comes back and says to the owner, by the way, I can save you, it was either 6% or 8% or whatever the number was on the contract. If you go to just a standard brick that is three equals nine, not three equals eight. So the owner turned to us and said, you know, because the contract's a fairly large amount, you know, one of the bigger uh, dollar items on the entire job and says, "Um, can we do that? Uh, Why shouldn't we do that? And so we were suddenly looking at, you have to start thinking about, well, the windows are all designed to fit neatly within the brick module. We're not changing the horizontal spacing of anything because that's the brick is still eight inches. But all of those heights as they stack up are now all different by some minute dimension. And this was happening when, if I'm remembering correctly, was fr- had framing already started when this number came in? That I'm not sure about. But either way, we had to scramble 
and see how much of our rough openings we had to adjust. And then circle back with, it didn't really affect the window cost because you're adding, say, an inch of height here or there. But the challenge is, is that we had to redraw the facades completely while the building was under construction under a completely new module. And it got more complicated because if you're thinking about it, a soldier courses over the windows, those now are still on the eight inch module because they want to align to the eight above. So we actually had all over the facade, all of a sudden, we had about nine different kinds of brick. So if it hadn't been, you know, Mike Baker at Mutual Materials saying, yeah, okay, so you know, Mike, yeah, Mike and I go back almost, uh, almost 20 years. And the number of times that I've had to call him and say, I'm having a problem. And I'm wondering whether is there any way that you can get me out of this dumpster fire I've created for myself? And he was able to really tell the Mason, look, look, we'll give you, we're going to give you the bricks because there were already three bricks on the facade. There was the main brick, there was the contrast bricks that were at the heads and some of the trim pieces. And then there was also a field brick above the stone core, or actually precast course that was a rug cut. So it was the same color, but different texture. And now all of a sudden we're adding different sizes into this mix. And Mike had to reassure the mason. I was like, no, we'll deliver this to you in a way that is completely logical and it's no additional cost. And we'll just set, and it calmed the mason's concerns because for a while there, the mason was saying, because we were trying to preserve the aesthetic, but also give the owner the savings. So it ended up at the end of the day with the participation of the manufacturer we were able to basically deliver the design idea in a way that no one could ever tell the difference. So that was going to tie in with one of my things I would say to young architects is that there's a tendency to see these things as, as really bad news, whether it's in the design process or it's under construction and something has happened. And you need to recognize that there's that you can be flexible and there are times that you probably can come up with a solution and also being very clear about Am I solving something? Am I worrying about something that people will really see and experience? If the answer is yes, fight for it. But if it's something that is just in the bucket of sort of, at least from my point of view, sort of fussy things that architects worry about, maybe you can give on that a little bit and be actually, this is probably an apocryphal quote, but I like to believe it's true that Steve Jobs uh, of Apple once said that every interaction that you have with people is either a deposit or a withdrawal. And what you want to be doing is in your relations with the owner and your relations with the contractor, making as many deposits as you can so that when you need to make a withdrawal, there is goodwill and flexibility on the other side so that they're willing to work with you. Because if we hadn't had you know, a Mike Baker at Mutual willing to go to bat for us, if we hadn't sort of took the stance that the Mason, just because they were proposing that change, they weren't in a sense our enemy in any way. They were just trying to save the owner some dollars. And going in with it, that kind of, to the greatest degree that you can, sort of an attitude of patience and goodwill, you're more likely to get results that everybody can look. As Andrew mentioned, the building is wood frame construction, which illuminated another lesson in considerations for him on future projects. I do think we would take another look at the structural system. I think we stretched wood the some of the aspects of the wood framing 
a little harder and than we might ordinarily have done. And I'm wondering if there was some sort of hybrid wood steel solution that would have been just as cost effective that might not have had some peculiar, but there was a lot of, there's a lot of wood in those shear walls. I mean, it's, it starts to feel a little bit like a log cabin. We've got so much solid wood, but I think the larger point, and it's one that, um, that I talk about with the team frequently is spending money where people can see it. And this is just my hypothesis. I don't have a lot of data to back it up is I wonder because we, again, the way we architects attack design problems where we're doing plan sketches and we're doing models and massing, there's a tendency to generate fairly complex shapes. And those complex shapes result in, if you, you think, in, let's say, hypothetically, lots of complicated roof connections. And you're spending money up on the roof on flashing because as all of these shapes are coming together. And because the, we actually had a more complicated and articulated version of the box in the early sketches and uh, the developers, his answer was, yeah, that's fine. We could take those out. I just want the roof to be a simple mansard all the way around. And so we had to, and I'm not suggesting minimalism necessarily. I'm just suggesting simplicity that you may find, well, there's a reason why really complex articulated buildings are going to drive your costs up. And so recognize that that's happening. Spend money where your users are going to, that either gets the function right, gets the aesthetics right. Oh, and just as an aside, it, you know, there's a building behind me in a completely different style that our office did for, that's actually on the George Fox campus. I was going to say, don't be afraid of symmetry. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's something unusual, you know, to have, we just sort of, at some point, you know, the plan lays itself out better if we just put the door in the middle. And there's no feature stair. It's just, you know, the stairs, there's just two stairs, one at either wing of the, the hallway. So simplicity, symmetry can be fine if it's the right, the right building. And reminding yourself to design for your, I, I, I'm, I don't want to sound remotely preachy, but, you know, designing for the clients. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's, this is something that I, I've said in meetings and I don't know how it comes across is that I don't view our clients as hiring us to design our buildings. I like to think we're designing the buildings that they're their buildings. At the end of the day, we're gone. I mean, it's, and so what they're hoping we do is that we bring our expertise to do the best version of the building they want, not the building that we necessarily want. And that's a, and that's a subtle and gray distinction. And I'm not, trying to suggest that architects are always guilty of it. Sometimes we can be. The George Fox University Medical Sciences Building stands as a testament to innovation, sustainability, and academic excellence, poised to nurture the next generation of healthcare professionals in an environment that marries form and function with finesse. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what advice Andrew would share with architects that are very early in their career. So the first thing I would say is give yourself patience. And you know, most architects, if we're, if we're talking about architects specifically, it takes a long time to get your feet underneath you. There is the adage about most architects don't know what they're doing until they hit age 40. Uh, as a minimum, and I sometimes think it's older than that. There's just so much to learn, whether it's 
construction technology or the legal aspects, how to run a business, improving your eye over time, understanding how to interact with clients and the, the social aspect of it, learning ever more about the history of architecture and how it applies to your given projects. You could go on and on and on. It's a tremendous amount for one person to know. And it's going to take time. And the thing that architect, young architects find is you, for the last, depending on whether grad school or undergraduate, in the last couple of years, you've been asked your idea about some big project, your final project to design a museum. And then you get, you hit a desk and someone's asking you to organize the interior elevations for bathrooms. And you have to realize that, you know, that's the first stepping stone towards mastering all of these things and you have to get you have to be patient and give yourself time to recognize that school is not exactly the same not even in some cases not remotely the same as practice and this would have been good advice for me if your first job is like oh my gosh all i'm doing is organizing rfis it gets more interesting it gets better and it gets more enjoyable uh, the longer you're at it the second thing i would suggest is a kind of Humility. We talked earlier about the difference between sort of clients and patrons. The majority of the work that, that the profession does, and this is the broader profession, including engineers and builders, is that you aren't doing that iconic project that maybe gets a write-up in the New York Times. You're doing uh, high school gym additions, and you're remodeling church offices, and maybe you're doing an academic building. And these things are all a little bit more background buildings to people's lives and recognizing that the goal is to make beautiful, functional, long-lasting things that are going to serve people for the next 75 to 100 years. Because certainly as a sustainability goal, the most sustainable building is the one that sticks around for a century or more. You don't have to tear it down and replace it. So a certain kind of positioning yourself relative to your task. And then the, the last thing I would say is, as much as VR and computer modeling and tools that have emerged in the last decade or more are remarkable, invaluable, and as we talk, maybe even game-changing aspects, don't forget to draw. There's a something that happens, the connection between the brain and the hand when you're sketching an elevation, when you're sketching a plan, and the number of young architects that I know that are sort of out on the office who I think are talented and really you know, fantastic to have here. But I'll say, well, why don't you sketch that for me? And we'll just take a look. And there's a slight moment of like, uh, yeah, we don't really sketch. It's like, well, no, you really should. Because I, I do think that there, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's a neurologist who, out there who could explain it. I do think that connections happen hand to eye that is different than mouse computer screen me looking at that computer screen so if you have your drawing skills don't let them atrophy if you haven't developed any you know apply number two maybe a little bit of humility and just say that's something i should keep on working on anyway it's a pleasure to, to sketch at least that's been my experience so how about that three i really enjoyed this conversation with andrew i hope this episode sparks a new idea helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. My father, who's an engineer who passed away a couple years ago, very, very bright man. I mean, mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, original degree aerospace engineering, he was always learning. 
And I recall asking him, and I, at the time I was probably in my mid-20s, Dad, what's the thing that you regret most in life? And I expected a different answer than this. And what he said, after a moment of considering, was, I regret the times where I've interacted with people and I haven't been as kind as I could have been. Which surprised me because he was, my daughters had commented that he was the kindest man that they had ever met. But I think, uh, at least for me, that kind of going with kindness and all the relations and and to extend it maybe in a place that, it, that I'm ex- extending it as a metaphor that maybe doesn't quite work is you know making the buildings do some of the same things to people. That's, I'm not sure that's a world domination strategy, but that's certainly my strategy for how I, how ideally I'd like to be remembered for uh, interacting with the world. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.